Welcome back. This is Friday, September 4th. This is the morning brush back. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. And Bobby, do you really like juice that much? Like, do you really juice things that often? How often are you using this juicer that we were just talking about? I use it a handful of, I don't know, handful of times a month right now. Like what? Like we, because uh, juice is good, Dan. It, is yeah, it, get your micronutrients, it, yes. Why can't you just eat the fruits, though? Or the, and the vegetables. Because the amount of food that is, like if you juice kale, to eat that much kale to get like a shot glass full of juice would be insane. Yeah, but you don't, like kale, you need to eat the leaf. Like you, you're not getting, like here's my thing with juice. Like the cellular structure of anything, like there's cells and then like the goodies are sort of inside it. So you juice it, you're like slicing it with the thing and then the, stuff comes out of the cell essentially like you're shattering cell walls so but the cell walls in general are healthy for you like that's that's the, the fiber that's the structure of the plant there's a lot of stuff in that that i just don't think you can say that juicing a thing unless you just completely blend it and drink the entire blended mass which is just the same as chewing it but that's obviously not what happens in juicing you like you remove a lot of the pulp i just don't like it's very well proven by a nutritionist so like this is not the best thing now if it's all just vegetables okay but you get a big dose of sugar too like you end up getting all the worst stuff and a lot of the not the best stuff yeah i'm not i'm not eating or i'm not drinking orange juice from as, as dan drinks a juice it's <laughs> like just this is the the antagonist that's of that's dan why, that's why we were talking about this i have my carrot juice carrot, today carrot juice but there's no way for the amount of vegetables that you would put in a juicer to get a glass of just liquid juice that you would be eating that daily just too much like even well, cucumber even cucumbers that are full of water juicing you have to juice three cucumbers to get a full cup of juice nobody's sitting and eating three cucumbers i hope not um yeah cucumbers are a waste of time do you drink cucumber juice is that like a good thing uh you throw it in there because it's got a lot of water and there are vitamins and new and yeah, it's got something. I, I feel like it's like the, it's like the dinghy of of uh, the vegetable world. It's certainly not the motorboat. But you'd have to get a cup full of like kale juice. You would have to juice literally an acre of kale. <laughs> like you'd have to harvest. Well, because there's no there's, there's yeah, there's no liquid in it. It's a dry. But kale is very terrible. Good for you. Yeah, it's terrible though. But to my point is that take your kale and throw it in your smoothie like to blend it up and just and completely just like chop the kale up essentially and consume all of it rather than leaving some of the kale out and just getting the kale water, kale juice. That's my point. Kale juice. Kale, kale juice. Eh. I fully support throwing leaves into your smoothie, but this is the only juice that I drink is uh, carrot juice because orange juice is very unhealthy. I like grapefruit juice, but I don't drink because it's also unhealthy. It's like not really that distinguished. It's just like having a soda with a little extra vitamins. It's like not a good vitamin thing. soda. It's a good vitamin soda. It's a big dose of sugar. You know this. You're like a weird vegan person. I've got interesting eating habits. Yeah, to say the least. Bobby. So today we're going to talk about bunting, plus more baseball things, which is going to leave our viewer in suspense. So if you're out there in YouTube <laughs> or Twitter, thanks for joining us live here today. 
you have a question or a topic we can discuss or something we can answer for you, uh, feel free to shoot us a comment in the text. I'll be monitoring YouTube. Robert will be monitoring um, Periscope. So how do you feel about bunting today in today's modern baseball world? Do your travel teams bunt? We'll cover, let's cover youth baseball first, and then we'll cover Major League Baseball because there's definitely a difference. Youth baseball bunting, absolutely, absolute necessity for youth teams. And I do hear there's guys that will refuse to teach bunting. There are hitting coaches that refuse to teach bunting. Bunting is strictly 100% an attitude. Like, if you aren't afraid of the ball, you will put your face in there and you will lay down a bunt off the machine, off of a guy throwing. And at the youth level, it is 100% necessary. You have, to, you have to teach bunting. You have to teach it young, early, and you have to establish that there is no fear when you're in the box because that is my biggest hurdle to overcome with young players is they just wave the bat and there you can see the fear when they when they're transitioning to when they're transitioning to uh, player pitch and maybe they get hit one time and all of a sudden you start seeing guys that are throwing a little bit harder than you're used to the fear is just like over overwhelming so the first thing we do is bunt you have to you have to sh- take the fear out of bunting take the fear out of being your having your face close to the baseball and having the bat right in front of your face and and forcing yourself to like actually square it up and prove to that ball that you can push it seven or eight feet out. Show that ball who's boss. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. I buy that. And that seems like a reasonable opinion. Um, When I was a kid, I obviously like read all the baseball books and in Ty Cobb's either biography or autobiography, he explained that when he was slumping, he would spend a lot of extra time bunting in batting practice because you're watching it in and uh, it just like kind of reconnects you with the eyes and the ball on the bat. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I'm on board with that. I think that's, I think that's similar to, I say it a lot on Twitter is that confidence is your best hitting tool. Like if that's what, if that's what re-ups is confidence, uh, when he's going, when he's going poorly, absolutely, yeah. Start bunting, bunt a thousand baseballs. But I, okay. I understand, like it's all mindset, right? Bunting is a total mindset. Any any adult putting them off the machine at a reasonable speed should be able to lay down a bunt, even if they're not a baseball player, because you just watch the ball hit the bat. It's not. It's similar to catching a baseball. I would say most adults could do that with decent hand-eye coordination. The reason that a lot of players don't do it is the fear of it, in my opinion, is they get a little bit nervous of what's going to happen if the ball ricochets off their bat, the ball's coming a little bit harder, their face is a lot closer than it normally is. So, I well, would uh, fun to I also think it probably helps coordination, like Ty Cobb said. I mean, for example, I was hitting fungos on – what day is it? On Tuesday? And so I was hitting from the first base side to the shortstop. And, uh, you know, a couple of the kids were, like, throwing them too far in, like, throwing them all the way in where I don't have my gloves. So I'm just, like, trying to bun it to deaden it right in front of me as we mm-hmm. do, you know. And especially as I'm, like, chasing them, like, there's a throw, like, five feet to my right. I have to chase it and, like, catch it with my bat. I was, like, four for four, which was pretty good because it's hard to judge those. But even as you're, like, running and it's not in front of you, 
and you learn to like catch it on the bat, which this bat's now, you know, three feet away from your body. I feel like that's a skill that I don't know that, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going exactly with what I'm saying, but I feel like that was a skill that I developed, not just from hitting, but from bunting when I was young and just having good hand-eye coordination. Cause it's hard to do to like, it's not, the ball's not coming. It's easier when it's coming at you. You can like watch it into your bat, but then to like have it away from your body as you're moving and still catch it on the barrel. Um, I just think all those little, those little things add up to helping you be better at baseball. It's an over, it's just, it's a skill you should have. It's a skill you should have just as, just as even if you're a pitcher, you're only throwing from over the top, but it's a skill you should have to be able to throw from a different arm angle every once in a while, just to play catch, like it broaden your athletic uh, talent stack, if you will. But it's you, at a younger age, like you don't need, you don't know you need it until you need it. Bunting wise. Like there's always going to be coaches that want you to lay down a bunt with a guy on second, nobody out. Like, and it's not a bad baseball play for whatever the metrics say. Like you lay down a bunt, you get a guy to third base with less than two outs. Like there is a much higher percentage chance he's going to score than with him on second. Mm-hmm. So it's never a terrible play to bunt a guy, you know, in a situation such as that. Um, and okay, guys so want you to do it. Like we lay down bunts in the summer. It's stuff that matters. It's winning yeah. baseball. Okay. Well, let's go deeper into that. So I think we both agree that coordination and stuff like that is an important thing you can develop from bunting. And I definitely agree when you're young, that seems good. Uh, so as far as strategy wise, how would you use bunting with your like say 15, 16 U teams? Is it strictly for sacrificing? Is it for, um, you know, push bunting? Is it bunting for hits? What's the, what would be the breakdown? Let's say squeeze. Let's say the three things are sacrifices, squeezing, and bunting for hits. Those are like the three variations. Um, what, what what's your what's your pie chart look like? So the last tournament I I was coaching in uh, our seventeen new guys, and I I made a point to tell the we've got a we had like three quick guys on the team, like guys with sub seven sixty times good speed, and I told them I said you need to in the in the first two at-bats, I was like, you need to at least show bunt at some point in the at-bat. And my reasoning and my explanation to both of the, to all these guys was, look, if the third baseman is back, and I always advocate if you're going to bunt for a hit, it should go to third base. Make the pitcher make the longer throw, right? He's got to take some a little longer time to get there. Um, but you should show bunt because what it does – it does a, a few things. One, it puts it in the defense, defense's ear or in their mind that, okay, this guy may lay down a bunt. So every time that you come to the plate, those guys have to respect you, your, your prowess, your bunting prowess, or at least your ability and your willingness to bunt. Two is that you create so many more holes when you, when you can adjust the defense to, with what you're doing at the plate. So if you're a guy that – is consistently laid on the fastball. Like you don't have as many holes because the defense shifts and any, any, the majority of where you're going to score the ball up, the defense is already playing you that way. But if you're someone that's going to lay down a bunt and all of a sudden the third baseman has to respect that. So he's got to be in on the grass and the first baseman has got to be in on the grass that those holes now are significantly bigger in the infield. And granted we teach you don't hit the ball in the air, drive line drives into the gaps. We don't always do that. And it's just the fact of baseball. Like we're not always going to square the ball up. Sometimes we roll over 
if those holes are bigger, we're going to have more hits. Okay, it's it's more of a you're playing a chess game with the defense, and to not use the bunt to your advantage is is not using one of the tools in your toolbox. Like you have speed, you need to use it. There's no speed is no good if you're not going to use it. What's the cutoff? How how do you determine who's got speed and who doesn't? Look, what does speed mean to you? I think speed down to first is like a four three or faster. A four four to first base or faster. What does that translate to in, into a sixty? I don't have a good seven, frame of reference. Seven seven zero. I mean, even seven one guys with a good laid down bunt. A well placed bunt for a hit is a hit. I mean, you'd have to be very slow, mainly like a pitcher, to not beat out a bunt, a good bunt hit. But guys that are six nine, six eight, six seven, sixties, that's that type of speed should be. That's that calls for at least getting in the box, taking your sign, and then checking where the corner guys are at. And you have to. You just have to as a as a guy who's got, you know, somewhat above average speed. And above average speed doesn't mean that you can't hit. But guys that are slow, that are boppers, that have to rely on power as like their one hit tool. That's that's more difficult than a guy who can say lay down a bunt be one for one, then I'll then go hit his double in the game. Yeah. Uh, so bunting for a hit I, is a, is an absolute, like you have to check, you have to look like the first thing you should check after you take a sign is where the f- defense is playing regardless as a hitter. Cause it gives you a frame of reference when you do put the ball in play. Now, what if you have a team that's just like destroys the ball? If you have a team that destroys the ball, aren't even fast. I mean, the same percentage of any team. Like okay, 20, so there's 20, like two, 20, guys two, two, two in the lineup, team. yeah, 20%. Uh, I still think the fast guys need to look and see where the defense is playing. Now, we don't normally bunt. So that was bunt for a hit, right? Sacrifice bunt. Oh, no, I, I, don't want, I don't want to get away from that yet. What is How far does a third baseman need to be back for it to be like, hey, let's do this? On a normal field, if his, if his cleats are in dirt, you should try. You should try. You should, and you're fast, you that's should far, try. That's far, that's far enough, just in the I dirt? I think not, that's far not enough. Not even even with the bag? Not even even with the bag. If his, feet are touch, if his feet are on the dirt, then you should at least attempt to lay one down. The biggest issue with guys that are trying to bunt for a hit is they don't know when to start to bunt for a hit. They, they, the pitcher hasn't released the ball yet or hasn't gotten to the point of like his power position where he's front foot planted and they're already showing bunt. Like you're giving that guy too much time to just sprint in at you and feel the play. Like the element of surprises with the bunt for hit is huge. You can't, if you show early, he's just going to be waiting there for the bunt. But if you show after, you know, as he's getting to the, to his release point, okay, well now we're going to, get ready to bunt for a hit. Like you're not giving that third baseman very much time to break in and get a head start on you. In which case you should be able to beat it out on a decent bunt. Well, I agree with all that, but the difference between like release point and when your front foot lands is like a fraction of a second, like a tiny. So there's probably not really any real difference there. No, no where, guys that are like show when like the guys in his balance point are like, you know, yeah, yeah. I would, agree, I would agree. That's too early. I just, I get me. I misinterpreted what you meant, but um, they should start to move towards the plate before you. you as, go. as his hands are breaking in the front foot plants, I mean, you could probably start at that point. If you can start a little bit later and you're comfortable and you're not rushed. Mm-hmm. Also, also something you can practice in normal batting practice. Like, doesn't hurt to lay down a bunt or two 
for a hit if you're a guy that does that. Now, given finite practice time, how big of a priority is this? I mean, say you only have two hours, two hours twice a week with your team. How much time should you spend on bunting? Mm, if we're hitting during practice, they should at least bunt, I don't know, one or two every round. Just lay one down. I mean, give your, at least give yourself a frame of reference, especially if you're facing the guy throwing over the top because you don't always get that at practice. There's a lot of flips. There's a lot of machine work. If you get a guy that's going to that's gonna throw over the top, absolutely, you should at least lay one down. First, you know, first ball around, last ball around, whatever. Okay. Like, give yourself a shot. You know, put it in your toolbox, as, as some coaches would say. Okay. Well, let's go to sacrificing. What's your, what's your deal there? Uh, I would not sacrifice bunt in games that don't matter early. Games that ma- games that don't matter, I wouldn't sacrifice bunt at all. If we're just playing scrimmage games, I swing away, get your at bats. High school kids don't get enough at bats as it is. In a high in a high school season where the coach, the varsity coach, is trying to win conference, trying to win games, if you feel the need to bunt and get guys over, do it. I would much prefer guys bunt bunt runners second or third as opposed to first or second. I don't see the I don't see the bunting the guy from first base to second base all that beneficial. I'd rather take my chances on a, on a steal or a hit and run, but definitely lay one down, get the guy second and third in games that matter in tournament games in the summer, our coaches, every game I've ever been to are pretty good early in the game. Let's swing the bats. Let's try and hit the ball. If the, if it's starting to get close, we need a run at the end. Okay. Let's play a little bit more strategic baseball, like play the odds, get the guy to third base, I mean, especially when you're talking when you're talking high school baseball, where not all the plays are made, right? Not all the balls that are pitched are blocked. Uh, you know, there's there's much more variance in the de- on the defensive side in a high school game. So getting a guy to third base in scoring because in one base away from scoring, so many things can happen in a high school game. So many bad plays can happen. Throwbacks to the pitcher, get away. Like there's so many random things that happen in those games that you don't see in the big leagues. That's why guys don't bunt nearly as often in the big leagues. Like the defense is so solid and the pitching is so solid. Like these guys know that when the ball's put in play, it's going to be an out. When the ball's moving, it's going to be caught. Gotcha. Um, Okay. So when do you use sacrifice bunts? Sacrifice bunting, close game, late in the game. You know, let's say fourth, fifth inning on, in a in a tournament that you need to win to play more games. So we have a coach. We have a our sixteen U coach always uses the phrase free baseball. You know, you go to a tournament, you get four guaranteed games. We're trying to get to free baseball. We're trying to get to that fifth game, sixth game, seventh game, hopefully, and play more games. So in the games that can essentially elevate you to the free baseball round, the bracket round. We're laying down bunts. We're trying to we're trying to manufacture runs, and it's also relative to who you're playing. Are you playing a guy who's who's shoving it down your throat and he's got good stuff and he gave up a a double? Like okay, he's got one hit through five innings. Like let's try and put some pressure on. If we're facing a guy that we get two, three, four hits every inning, we're probably gonna let the kids swing away, and the score is probably gonna dictate that we don't need to bunt guys over. Gotcha. All right, well, let's go to um, uh, squeezes. 
Do you use these if, how, and when? Squeeze bunt. Yes, we've used them not as much. Uh, the, the issue I have with the squeeze bunt is that kids are so bad at taking signs now, like recognizing signs and putting them into action. I mean, I can't tell you how many signs in the last tournament I gave, and I only have three signs, bunt, hit and run, steal, that we missed. Mainly bunt, or no, excuse me, mainly steal signs that we missed. But like, as a coach, it's nerve wracking when, okay, I'm gonna give you the, the squeeze sign, the bunt, whatever, the bunt and steal squeeze, and you're not gonna get it, and I'm gonna have a kid sprinting straight at you, and you're just gonna take a full on swing. So you, I feel like squeeze, you have to have the right guy up that knows what's happening. At least the guy on third base, if you're coaching, you can talk to him, verbalize it. But you have to have a lot of trust in that guy that's hitting. And at the high school level, I mean, even at the professional level, I don't know how much trust I have in, in half the lineup to recognize signs consistently. Like, I feel like they just force a habit. Look at the third baseman, third base coach, and they think he's just waving his hands like, you know, performing a, a silent play. Like, no, these signs, sometimes they mean something. You should, you should know what they mean. Yeah, no, that's reasonable. Um, so how many times did your team squeeze last year? Even estimation? Uh, I would say the squeeze was probably used. Our 16U team definitely did it the most. I would say they probably used it eight times the whole summer, eight times in 30 games. And we had nine high school teams. Eight was the most, and I would say five or six of the teams probably did it less than two times. It's just not a, it's just not a play that's used that much anymore. Pitchers have gotten so good. I mean, pitchers control their bodies so well. Like, you see a bunt, they're going to put a ball that's unbuntable. Like, that's something you guys practice in the bullpens, I would assume. I've seen it done when I used to play. No, no, I've never practiced I, that. You've never practiced just no. throwing a pitch out? Uh, I mean, throwing a pitch out, maybe, but uh, there's never, like, practice deking a suicide bunt. I don't know. But I guess that makes sense. I mean, if you pick it up early enough, sure. But that's something that's also, I don't know. It's hard to not prepare yourself to throw a strike when you're preparing to throw a strike. Like, if you're, you know, your leg is, you've kicked your leg, and now, you know, you're going towards the plate, and you never thought about the scenario of, oh, what if this guy squares around a squeeze bunt? As soon as he shows bunt, you're not going to immediately be like, oh, this is a squeeze bunt. I need to throw one at his ear. It's hard to make all those decisions in real time. I mean, certainly you could realize, oh, the runner on third, this is a squeeze bunt. But to do that and put all the dots together, like connect all of them and then suddenly throw a ball in his ear so he can't bunt it, that's kind of tough. You know, maybe you get lucky and just throw a ball by accident or you kind of get yippy and just like go somewhere. But um, throwing a pitch out is fundamentally different because you know you're throwing a pitch out when you throw a pitch out. So you're just mentally locked in on throwing out into the space of the empty batter's box whereas in this one you have to do the same thing but you have to do it at the very last minute and you didn't know you were going to do it so it's tough it's tough to say the least but i don't know yeah i I saw it in action a couple times and i just wondered so i saw it in action with zero outs and a runner on third and that didn't make a lot of sense to me that does not Um, make a lot of sense it's like you have three three tries to get a hit to score him from third or two tries to hit a deep fly ball or a ground ball that gets you know deep enough where you can score. That seems like a poor decision. 
um, doesn't seem to go with the percentages in baseball because you score like 88% of the time from third with no one out anyway. So eh, that seems sketchy. I think it depends on the hitter, obviously, and it depends on how important it is, but pretty high, pretty high scoring probability from third anyway with one out. So that's why I'm kind of iffy on, on, uh, on squeeze plays personally. But well, depending, on, depending your... on the hitter, it, it can maybe be the best choice because there are some kids that are like, this kid's probably going to punch out. Right. So maybe this is our best shot. But then you also have like, you want to give your hitters like game reps in certain situations, run around third, less than two outs. Like those, that's a, that's a staple of baseball. Like, you need to be good at that. You need to be able to get that guy in like RBIs matter, you know, mm-hmm. scoring runs is the goal having more points than the other team is the ultimate goal. Like you need to be big, a guy that that's big in baseball. Yeah. Big in baseball. The most points. Yeah. So you got to be a guy that, Hey, when there's a point to be had, we can trust you to like have a good at bat and not tense up and, and, you know, freak out. And it's when there's, you know, you're a pitcher when you're brought into situations you've never been in before. Like you, you have to try and get through that situation. Like if you've never been in it before, it's, it's more difficult. So to give a kid who's, let's say, 17 years old, every time there's a guy in third, just keep giving him the squeeze because you don't trust him to swing the bat. Like, if that kid ends up playing in college, like, he's going to have to swing. At some point, he's going to have to swing with a guy in third base in less than two outs. Like, you should give him those reps. And, they, I mean, this kids just do not get enough baseball reps. For as much as baseball is advanced, like, they just don't get enough baseball reps, like live, you know, tension-filled reps. Then, then – probably you and I have gotten or our parents generation had, had gotten when they were just playing outside, you know, playing games. Like even if you're playing between your friends, like you're still trying to win. Like those are reps. Those are good reps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my feelings on bunting have waffled over the years. Um, in general, I'm not a huge sacrifice bunner or I wasn't when I was a head coach. I'm not a head coach currently. Um, I we did more attempted bunting for hits my last season with a team that struggled at the plate. So with guys that were not hitting super well, we were there was like a constant alert. Like third baseman, if he's deep, you're trying it. Like let's do this because if you're hitting 200, like we needed to try to do something to get get guys on base. Like we really struggled as a hitting team. Um, and I think there's value there. And of course, you see it especially like under age 13. You see the chaos caused by bunting. So there's merit there because kids don't like fielding bunts. My best season ever, I got, I think, one fieldable ball all season as a reliever. I had 50 appearances and I had to, like, make one comeback or throw all year. It was awesome. It was my best. It was my favorite. Did you make that play? Yeah, I did. But I definitely get a little yippy getting close to first base. I've thrown my share into into the stands. So they're best if they're hit right at me or their best of their hits to my right, and then I can just throw a missile, and then you don't think about it. But if you get into that little weird in-between zone where you have to make like a 35-foot throw, and they're really moving fast, and you're like, I can't actually throw it hard. I can't throw a dart either. What do I do? And then you can just chuck it in the stands. That's how it works. It's funny because spring training and, uh, you know, even college baseball practice, like the amount of pitcher fielding practice over bunts is like totally disproportionate to the number of bunts and and 
balls fielded by pitchers over the course of this over the course of the year. I mean, well, you that's said like, that's like any one. that's like anything though. I mean, you need to do it to be prepared. So it's it's it becomes a habit and it needs to be second nature, right? Not part of that's every day. Building, part of that's building the habit. I mean, think about it. When you're young, you forget to cover first base on balls to the right side, right? Because it's not a habit. It's not because you don't like you can't think about it. It just needs to become a habit. Like you see the ball and automatically you start to do that. So if you don't do that in, in pitchers fielding practice over and over and over, you don't develop the habit because you don't get enough reps in the game to develop that habit. No, it's not even getting reps in the game. It's just the like when spring training, there was always, you know, Oriole spring training. I remember there's always like you do stretch, you do your, you play, you do your throwing program. And then there was like a 20 minutes of PFPs, you know, pitcher fielding practice, whatever it was every single day. So that's a, there's a, disproportionate amount of time spent like with pitchers fielding the ball when they don't really feel the ball. I mean, the amount of plays that and the box score that start off with one, like a one, like a one, six, three, a one, three, a one, four just does not. It's, it's doesn't uncalled for. Yeah. But are you saying disproportionate is unnecessary and wasteful or what are you saying? I'm saying it's, I'm saying it's, disproportionate amount of practice time we spend yeah but no, no no but here's the thing how many ground balls do you take in a week as an infielder how many ground balls do you hit to your shortstops 50 they don't get 50 ground balls in a game do they no, but they get significantly more like if they got five and the pitcher gets one we should spend five times the amount of time hitting to the shortstop that's not the point. It's not to yes. match the game. No, it's to make you yes. better at it. It's to make you better at it. That's pitchers, nonsense. Dan, I can't stress enough. Pitchers are pitchers. Your are logic useless. is so bad. This is like pitchers are useless. Logic. They don't need to be fielding ground balls. Just get out of the way. I agree, but your but your metrics here of determining why it's useless doesn't make sense. Because again, if that was if that logic held up, then like why are we hitting hundred ground balls to a shortstop? He's only going to get four in a game. Let's hit him four. Like that doesn't make sense. No, he's not going to be as good as shortstop. Hitting for. He you're hitting, he you're hitting pitchers to, a lot of these PFPs so that they're better at it. The point is not the shortstop needs to be matches. better. The shortstop needs to be better at fielding ground balls than the pitcher. So if you're going to split up your time hitting ground balls, the shortstop should have a oh, bigger Oh, so now you're saying it's finite? We never, we're saying it was finite. Pitchers are always doing that when every guy, other guys are doing their own thing. It's not, like for, it's not like for every ground ball a pitcher gets is taking away a ground ball from a shortstop. That's not how it works. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not. But you have a sum. finite amount of time at practice. So to spend. Yeah, for youth, maybe. 20%, whatever. To spend 20% hitting ground to roll bunts to pitchers. Well, youth is actually. I don't general, disagree I with doing it. I don't with disagree youth, doing it with youth, though. I don't disagree. I, I think the comebackers are stupid. Well, here's the thing for youth kids, they need to understand what they have to actually do when they get a comebacker and it's a double play. They, right. need, to, they need to go through it. They don't know what they're doing. The other thing they don't know what they're doing is on, is on bunts. They run over, they try to like grab it and throw it, and they need to like shove the ball into the ground and like grab it like a starfish with their fingers. There actually is some technique because if you just run over and try to like yank it out of the ground, you, usually, you end up leaving the ball on the ground, especially if the grass is thick. You so there's little things the you got to kind of, you have to really grab it hard. So stuff like that does I don't take, disagree with that. I don't disagree because at like the youth level, everybody pitches. Comebackers thrown to first is a waste of no, time. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's like you're just playing catch. Like you, you know how to play catch, and you know how to catch a ball when it's about to hit you. So like you don't really need to do comebackers to first. But the tweeners, like running to first and like catching the ball as the first baseman's flipping, all that stuff does need to be practiced. 
That's that's a difference. That's a different practice, though, right? Like with the the three ones are like the, the those one, are all PFPs. Three, like those are all PFPs. We're I mean, talking about bunting, though. The topic of the show is bunting. We're talking about pitchers fielding bunts and how pitchers just should practice on their own diamond and get out of the way of the of the athletes on the field. No one, no one was saying that that wasn't. No, you're making an argument against. No, no I'm not. I'm so, I'm so we spent a, a disproportionate amount of time practicing like bunting PFPs in relation to other things that would be that happen significantly more in the game. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, but here's the thing. Youth it's, level, it's, here's the thing though. It's a weird angle. Running like you have to, it's it's more difficult than you think. Unless the bunt is pretty easy, if the bunt's pretty far, where it's close to the line, you actually have to run over to, especially first base line. Now you get that ball, that runner's charging. You have to make a throw that doesn't hit him very quickly, and it's an awkward throw if you catch it, if you grab it on the first base line, kind of close to the plate as a pitcher. And so it I'm helps. Not, it I'm helps to disagree. It helps to have practice with that throw because you can't just grab it and throw it to the base like any other time it's it's weird angles and you have to know all right i'm getting this here i have to hurry and i have to throw it out in, like up the line so the first baseman has some space if you don't practice that stuff which i know you're not arguing against practicing in general but if you don't practice that stuff and when are those bunts are one of those bunts done they're done in critical junctions in the game so if you don't practice them now you have this weird angle throw that you almost never make you have to make it and you haven't practiced it and the game's on the line this is a really key spot and you chuck into the corner yeah you know you throw into right field so yeah, you have yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it so it's automatic because these aren't like the simple ones like the comebackers we don't need to practice that throwing it to first base but the double play turns the bunts because those are angles that you just don't really throw from very often and sometimes you do need to pick it up and you need to throw it sidearm or you need to do other stuff especially as runners gets faster you see these really athletic bunt plays that pitchers make in the big leagues because they have to guys are moving down that, down that line how are you going to throw Billy, Billy Hamilton out if you got to run three steps and pick up his bunt? Like, you're going to have to grab it and I mean, boom and be, and be, you know, Troy Tulowitzki for a second. I think you just move the infielders in about 30 feet from Billy Hamilton because he's not going to hit it past you. Well, and the other thing, there's a lot of pitchers that aren't good at fielding ground balls. Like, I wasn't as a kid. I was always an outfielder. So, it was helpful to me to get ground balls because I wasn't playing shortstop when I wasn't pitching. So making those throws was not second nature to me. In infielder pep infielder pep peeve the the comebacker the one six three where the where you get the pitcher that can't calibrate his fastball from from the pitcher's mound to the base so it's just a ninety ninety two with with a little bit of run exactly a, the re exactly the reason that's brutal exactly the reason you have to practice it because oh, it you guys don't do pitchers and if there are any out there listening you guys don't do that you're not practicing like firm throws you're just chucking it no that's you're what i'm saying you have to practice it you have to practice it to know what the right velocity is to throw at like to have a to have an idea because you that's my point is you guys don't do you guys don't you just throw missiles to the shortstop no, you well, no, you throw it the right speed, but how do you know like what the right speed is until you've done it a lot of times? You don't. Little kids don't know what yeah. they're doing. <laughs> yes, in in a perfect world, maybe, but pitchers know what they're doing. They're especially and this is the pro level. The pro level, like you get the comebacker and you get yeah. those guys like like Win. We had Win on early I can remember Win being athletic and just like, you know, making a firm throw, normal speed to the shortstop. Mm -hmm. And I can remember our closer, like Gleason, 
just – and Gleason is a good athlete, but every once in a while Gleason would just decide because he throws 95 to also throw it at the shortstop 95 miles an hour on a double play ball, and they, you hate him for it. Gleason's well, again, a different example because he's screwing with you, but there are certain guys that cannot tone it down. They can't – they don't – they're not athletic enough to – maybe they're not athletic. They're, I should say they're not, not, not athletic. But they're it's they're mentality. so yeah there's but they're so ingrained in like they do me- things methodically as a pitcher like that throw is essentially the same distance as you know pitchers mount at home that's they're throwing that speed like that's the speed they know how to throw yeah which is why you have to do it because it is it's weird to throw a ball ninety five and then grab the ball and then throw it seventy two it's just weird. But okay, and, but and when you guys practice important. it, but when you practice it, you're not practicing the throw at that 75. You're just chucking it to the dismay of the shortstop. That's not what most people do at all. That's what oh maybe like one guy do. does. No, no, it's not. No, 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 no. no. It's thir- it's 30% of the staff minimum throws as hard as they can. This is the Dan. I've been I'm standing. I stood at second base for no. thousands of these no. things. No, no, yes. 90 miles. Yes, per they hour. do. No. Yes, they do. It takes so much effort to throw a ball 90 miles per hour. No one's throwing it that hard. For some it just, guys. It just feels like it for you. No. No, it does 80, not. 82 tops. No shot. 80? No. No, not 82. It's a full rear back. Oh. When those infielders gloves, man, you've put on an infielders glove. There's Regardless, no you're, proving my, you're proving my point that it needs to be a part of the practice, that it needs to be done because there's so many little things in the rhythm. Do I mean, it on I'm, the backfield. I have a YouTube video about one six three double plays because kids don't know when to throw it they get the ball and they're like they just turn they chuck it and it's like nope shortstop's not there yet buddy you know the rhythm is you get the comebacker you collect you kind of like bring the ball to your center you take one shuffle and then you throw firmly to second base the one shuffle gives your shortstop time to get there or your second baseman that's the timing of it you learn that later on or when somebody smart tells you that but until that point kids just get it and then like and they want to throw it right away and then the guy's not ready because again, when you get a hard comebacker, it's in your glove, and the shortstop hasn't even moved yet. Hardly, like he's made, he's taken one step. So if you turn and chuck it, no one's there. Yeah. And then if so you're pro- right, and then if you're ready to turn and chuck it, and you see no one there, no one's there. Then what do you do? You get nervous. You like double pump, and now you're in a weird throwing position, and you're waiting for the guy to get there. Then he finally gets there, and then you're like, Ugh. again, that's when you chuck in the outfield. Whereas if you know to all right, right, I catch right. it, I bring it to my center. I turn to second base, I take a quick shuffle, and boom, I throw it through the middle of the base. That gives them enough time to get over there, and that's the stuff that you practice. And then you learn to not throw a 92-mile-per-hour ball into the center field either because then you can't get that to that one either. Like you throw it 70 miles per hour-ish, nice and crisp, and there it is. So We had practice on Wednesday. This is, this is a good segue here. We had practice on Wednesday, and I was, I was like standing at second base for the last practice, like playing the position. Uh, we were short a guy, but you know, we, we were doing nothing but situations, you know, fungo situations with runners and guy on first base. And we had a pitcher out there throwing a pitch and I'm, and, you know, pitcher gets the ball, he gets an amount. I'm like, and I'm like, step off. I'm like, who are you working with? And I don't know, maybe Dan, you could, you could clarify this. Like, have you ever not worked with the shortstop on a comebacker? Unless there's like a like a shift, I I Wait. we've always worked with the shortstop. Why would yeah? Why would you want the second baseman? Because then he's got to stop. He's got to stop and pivot the other way. Like the shortstop's right. going going that way. You wouldn't. So okay. So I yell out, "Who are you working with?" And in my head, thinking like, I know he's you're always working with the shortstop, but you know, give him one of these. You know, 
I'm working with you. And he looks and the pitcher looks at me. He's like, for what? And I was like, what do you mean? Who are you working with? Comeback or who are you working with? And he's like, for what? And I said, if the ball sit back to you, like I'm, I'm being loud, like so everyone here, I'm like, the ball sit back to you, you catch it. You need to throw it to second baseman or to second base. So the guy at second base can catch it, touch the base, throw it to first base, and we can get a double play. Like, what do you mean? Who are you working with on the comebacker? And he had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. Like, he, it didn't register to him that guy on first base, he catches, throws the second. And I think I take, like, take for granted, just, like, these kids just don't play enough baseball. Like, that's a natural – like, there's – can you ever remember p- pitching in the last, I don't know, 15 years of your life where a guy on first base, you didn't do one of these to the shortstop? Yeah, I stopped doing that because we knew it was the shortstop. Like, why, why, still, why do we need to keep talking about this? The guy? communication, it's still – it's – it's it's there. If I was playing shortstop and you were pitching, at least I know you know, right? I and guess. I, I think 17- that's a strange thing. Are you vouching? Are you saying that that needs to be a thing that you need to turn and tell the shortstop that hey, no, do the same I'm, thing that you always no, do? Because I think no, that's dumb. No, no, I'm saying that like the just the not just the wherewithal of like where the ball is supposed to go when you, as a, in the whole you know when when I'm running a practice. Obviously, I've, like, I played for a long time. Most of the coaches have played for a long time. Like, when the ball's hit, we know pretty much where everyone's supposed to go, right? So I've got kids that are like POs, pitcher-only players, and there's a guy in first, and we're doing situations, and I'm yelling out, like, all right, like, who are we working with? Just, to, like, naturally just – I'm just talking the game out loud, essentially, during practice. And just this, the fact that he did not know where the ball should be going, like, if it was hit back to him. And we watched it a few times throughout the course of practice, like first and second comebacker, uh, you know, normal comebacker pitcher just turns and fires a right to third base. Like he, like it's not the wrong play, but we want the double play, like turn and fire it right to second base. So we get a double play. Like just the baseball instincts I think are lacking at the youth level. This is not, this is like a segue to, I mean, into PFPs in general, but, it's like overarching. We always do PFP stuff at the youth level with all the players because they all pitch, right? But when you get to the higher levels, PFPs, this is my point, is that they don't need to be done as much because, one, the pitcher doesn't really field the ball all that often, if at all. And, two, you're taking time away from my ground balls at shortstop. This is the face I'm giving you. Yeah. Well, again, it just goes back to what we talked about in our last episode, which is habits. These are things you have to do enough with the kids that they have a habit. When kids get the comebacker with first and second and they throw to third base, it's because they didn't develop the habit that I get it, I turn to second, I end the inning on a double play rather than getting a stupid lead out at third base and having an extra out to get. Like that's what you're supposed to do. Hate the lead out at third base. It's a a very dumb play. Now, say here's one caveat. Say it's like 11U baseball and you're not going to turn a double play then I guess I'm okay with it, right? But at, but at the same time, you still can turn it all play. I mean, it depends. Maybe, sure. the fat, maybe the fat kid running. You don't know, but it's not like double plays are harder to turn at 11 or 12U if the throws are made. If, if you get a comebacker and you throw it sharply to second base, shortstop catches it, throws it sharply to first base, you can turn it all play, you know, in most scenarios at any level, really. It just depends you know, obviously there's points where kids are getting a little too big for the field and they need to jump up 
you know, if you're at the essentially the right age, then the game kind of plays the same. Sure. So here's but, a, I have a question for you, Dan. But my own, before you ask it, the big thing is just getting the habit. When the kid gets the comebacker, he needs to instinctively turn to second base and fire to get his double play rather than catching it, having to think about where he's going with it. That's when he doesn't have the habit, just with the ball to the right side, the habit that he goes to first base because you can't yell at the cover first base. Like, I'm so tired of coaches yelling that. I don't yell that. If you don't know to do it, then we just need to hit you more fungos. Like, it's a habit or it's, or it's not. Like, get over there. All right, I'm done. I'm bored. All right, well – like this, Ask me this is, this is uh, something I struggle with a little bit. What, at what age do you feel like you should be teaching real baseball in terms of cutoffs and uh, positioning? So when I say real baseball, so, you know, runner on second base, base hit the left field, that cut should go straight to home and the third baseman should be the cutoff guy. At what age do you start teaching that to kids? And at what age do you just do you let the shortstop be the cutoff all the time? Or do you only teach it the correct way? Like I don't, I don't, cut I don't teach trash baseball personally. No. But I also never coach teams. I also never coach below twelve U, so I'm not really gonna comment there. Well, all right. So that you, there's the answer. Is the I mean, it depends my, on the strength. Answer. Yeah, it depends on the strength of the throw. If your left fielder is throwing like sort of a lollipop because that's what he's got because he's ten, then you know you have to figure out what what's the best angle. Like who needs to field that throw? Like if he can't throw it to the middle of the field, middle of the infield, then it's not going to make sense for the shortstop to be cutting it, right? So like I get that, but um, I haven't coached young enough baseball where that's going to matter. Like I've coached. Did we have a 12-year team one year? I don't think we did. I think it was always 13 and up. So, 13 definitely, but 12-year is like when I start to introduce, okay, because here's my logic, is that from basically 11 and under baseball, kids don't necessarily have set positions. They'll play two, three, four positions. Coaches will throw them out on different spots. You know, you might have like your standard, you know, the kid who always plays shortstop or the kid who always catches. But for the most part, kids are kind of bouncing around position-wise. So my rule is always if the ball's in the outfield, the shortstop is the cutoff man, and everybody else covers their base. And then once they hit 12U where we start to establish, like, okay, you're our third baseman. Like, you're our first baseman. Like, okay, now we're going to start teaching baseball, you know. Ball hit in the get ball hit in the gap, you know. Shortstop goes out. Second baseman's the trail guy. Double cut stuff, but for the most part, like eleven and under. I mean, it teaching the get you almost you have to like pick and choose what you teach them because they're not going to retain it all. One and then two, it's like when when they're thinking too much, they're never playing the game. So I feel like the easiest way is okay. Shortstop has no base in his position to cover. He's the cut guy. Everybody else has a base. You cover your base. So we have like everything covered. I mean, if you have a good reason for doing what you're doing, I think that's fine. I don't like. I don't. I don't think again because I mean, here's another thing. A good example to your point is that like double cuts don't exist at a higher high enough level or at a higher level of baseball. Right? As soon as guys have a strong enough arm, double cuts don't exist. Right? There's no double cuts in the big leagues. Not really. Um, cause the guy gets there's, the ball on the on the fence and he just throws a missile to the shortstop. He throws a missile to the plate. Right? Like. 
There's no double cut. I don't remember hardly double cuts ever, right? Doesn't the shortstop just sort of trail and if it's an overthrow, he'll grab it or whatever. But there's no scenario in which the center fielder throws the shortstop. He throws the second baseman who throws to the plate. Like that, that's not a thing. Well, that's not a double. That's not a true double cut. Double cut's just that there's two cut guys out there. One's backing up the primary cut guy. But when you tell But in youth baseball, there's definitely two cutoff men. Like ball hit to the wall and like a big field hits one cut, who hits another cut, who then makes it, throws it to the plate. That's a double cut. I think they just, like, we'll te- we will teach it as, like, okay, ball hit down the left field line, shortstop's going out, second baseman's going to be the trail guy. Like, you're going to get the overthrow. You might yeah, not just, necessarily get. Which is what I just said. Throw. Yeah. Right. But at the youth level, they can't physically make the throw that far, especially when they jump up to a big field. No, so, especially when you're so playing they'll on have these youth to, They'll have two actual cuts. Yeah, they'll actually youth have to make two throws that have no fence, yeah. <laughs> which is just a nightmare when you, somebody hits – it's like turf especially. Like you play on a fence, even a high school field. Like you play on a field with no fence and turf, good luck. Like that ball's going to roll for 700 feet. Yeah, that's how I grew up. We on only turf? had one. No, no, no fence. We only had one fence oh. in my high school uh, conference. So Yeah, yeah, no, I'm talking about like – You destroy a, turf a ball, field. you destroy a ball, you just start – you just go shuck just just and shuck the, it and the funny thing is you can never really get a home run out of it like you'd think that without fences uh now of course like we had like good average i'd say high school baseball not like crazy high school baseball so like if you're having guys hitting 420 foot tanks which happens at certain places in the country no fence they're gonna get a home run probably but then again when you really hit like a legit home run that's high enough it doesn't roll nearly as far when it hits. Right. The ones that really get out there are usually the ones that are like 20 degree launch angle. That would be a legit double, like a one hop the fence kind of double. Those are the ones where you might have a chance to get all the way around. But it was very rare, even playing without fences most of the time, that you could leg out a home run. It was just like a triple, and that was about it. I mean, it out a while, but you wouldn't have thought in our high school conference, like, you wouldn't have there it wasn't like guys have five home runs on the season they're all in the park because they got to just keep running it wasn't that way at all like i don't remember laying out a home run once in high school so i don't know just an interesting interesting side note because people don't really they don't really play baseball without fences anymore which is interesting but it's just like not really a thing but we didn't have fences at all hardly when i was a kid i remember i hit my first over a fence home run at some park in like howard county maryland it literally hit the top of the fence and bounced over um, like you know, it's like a wooden fence with like a little tiny ledge at the top. But mm-hmm. um, we just didn't play on fence fields very often, so you like didn't have an opportunity to do it. It was weird. There's not many fence fields. I mean, that was like the you know every day you had picnic, you know picnic day or uh, what we had we had Thillens Day. Thillens was like a little baseball two baseball stadium fields in one little complex. Fences were like 200 feet around, you know, yeah. like literally World Series fields. But you had Thillens Day and what only thing you want to do hit a home run at Thillens, like hit a ball over the fence is also Thillens was like an armored truck company. So they had a big armored truck above the scoreboard. If you hit it, you won like 500 bucks. That's awesome. Which is, it's awesome. But nobody ever hit it. Cause when you're 10, that was like a 350 foot shot. Yeah. I, I guess maybe it was like city planning or something back then that made it different. But like back then it seemed like all the fields were a huge soccer field or, or two. And then they put a baseball field on the corner of it. That was like how my high school was. So 
the mm-hmm. outfields are always a nightmare because they'd have like pra- like JV football practice out there. So it was like naughty. You're running around. Your ankles are just, it's like you're running on cobblestones. Um, and I think probably when they redid a lot of those, rethought a lot of that planning maybe 10 years ago, they're like, it just doesn't seem like anyone plans out their high school baseball fields that way anymore, where they're mixed use, where it's just like two fields blended together. Like no one does that anymore, which makes sense because both fields probably suffer and the youth, the use is probably difficult to manage, but that seems like how it was all done back in the, I don't know. I was playing high school baseball in the year 2000. So prior to everything prior to that was probably just mixed use, but now everything new is always fence it off and find its own little chunk for it. So, well, the mixed use field, there's a couple in Chicago are they're genius for schools that are limited on space and also oh. want to use and want, want to use turf. Yeah. The turf, the turf makes up. sense. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Cause I think there's one in, um, it's near Humboldt park. I remember seeing one in Chicago. It's it's like right by a whole foods where it's in a, a kind of rougher neighborhood, but they got a beautiful turf field. I think they use for at least two things and they just have a temporary fence. They run through there. And otherwise it's, mostly a big open potentially football open. field or soccer field yeah. exactly with turf it makes more sense with multiple sports it's just like our outfield was a nightmare like it was legitimately you're running on these like tufts of grass because it's just so chewed up and so then as an outfielder your life sucks because you have a ground ball hit out to you in right field and you're like oh god oh god bodied up bodied up bodied up because you, <laughs> you can't charge a ball ever like it's terrifying no, to, try to charge a ball and throw a guy out the plate because it's going to skip over your glove or take a random – it's like playing with one of those reaction balls. Like, it was hard. And I was not – I was a good outfielder until I was, like, 15, 16. Then I wasn't quite as fast. And um, so the ground balls made me look bad. I was not good. <laughs> I was not good at predicting the random bounces. Also, I was You also good. can't teach, like, okay, like, balls hit in front of you, guy in second, like, you charge one-handed, you know – coming up hard you can't do that you can't teach that you you gotta slow down because the closer you get to the ball the more you see it doing weird stuff and you're like the consequences of me overrunning this ball or jumping over my glove are very very significant you look very bad when a ball goes under or over your glove as an outfielder the night especially as a corner outfielder which i was like a right fielder in high school it's a nightmare to have a ball go under your glove Ugh. there's no backups no (laughs) backups turn and go at least a triple you look like an idiot and it's, it's, it's not good. Oh, man. But then that, but that sucked all the joy out of playing the outfield. Cause the best thing about the outfield is those ground balls where you just get to either throw them out the plate from your chest on a fly ball, or you get to scoop a ground ball and just throw an absolute missile with, it doesn't matter if you get them ever, like no one ever expects you to make, you know, an outfield assist. So for me having a good arm, I just want to throw the piss out of the ball. And you and just let the chips fall where they may. So few I opportunities. I, I, don't, I don't care if I get you. I'm just going to throw an absolute <laughs> missile. That's but, awesome. Yeah, I'd love to grow up on turf fields these days. Get those big cherry hops. Oh, man. Oh, it's not even fair. Like, the turf is – when I have kids missing, like, ground balls on turf, like, because they're, like, popping themselves up, it's like, one, I ask myself, like, does this kid play in a really crappy high school field, like, where he's nervous? Well, he should and be better. Two. He should be better at it then. That's what I'm saying. Like, be what, amazing. Why? But it, it, he's got like, does he have like a PTSD where it's like he's been hit in the face and the chest so many times? He's like, he's just jumpy. Like, what is going on? Well, the, the bounce is on 
good turf fields are so easy to predict. And of course, so if you play in like Florida or one of those southern states where all the fields are Bermuda grass, those are even better because the ball hits and just it's just immediately rolling, you know? That's just snakes. nice, easy scoop. Oh, it does snake a little bit. That's you're right. That's so weird. That's a weird little thing. Um but yeah. Well, we got off topic today, but we uh had a good good bunt conversation. I mean, back to my thing on bunting to as like my little final word word. It's hard to be too black and white about it. I wrote an article that actually still gets a lot of web traffic. It's called Why Bunning is Bad, and it's about run expectancy. And, of course, the point of the article is not exactly why bunning is bad. It's just to help open people's eyes up to what run expectancy is and win probability is because um, there are times when you bun a runner to second with no one out, for example, that it hurts the amount of runs you'll score in that inning. Like through, through research of all the baseball out and uh, base states, so like first and second one out is an out base state. Uh, they've analyzed like how many runners score in every one of the situations. So they have data from thousands and thousands of games that say when you have first and second and two outs, your team scores on average 0.67 runs. When you have bases loaded and no one out, your team scores on average 2.6 runs. Like that's just the average from all these scenarios. So sometimes you score right. six runs, sometimes you score zero runs, right? Uh, but we know in general, and so then when you start to look at those numbers, where we know, okay, runner on second and one out, you score 0.4 runs, for example. Runner on second, no one out, you, or runner on first and no one out, you score 0.5 runs per inning. So you're like, why would I trade a 0.5 runs per inning scenario for a 0.4 runs per inning scenario? Does that make sense? That's yeah. essentially a stupid trade-off. You're saying, I'm going to put our team into a scenario where we get less runs than, than we would have prior to doing that. Like first and second is a great example you tend to have bigger innings with first and second and no one out than you do with second and third with one out. And there's kind of a reason for that, even though the double plays in order because, and, and the main reason is that not making outs is the most valuable thing you can do in baseball. Every out really hurts your inning. So with no outs in first and second, you just have a lot more possibilities and you have th- a minimum of three chances ignoring the double play to get those runners home. Whereas second and third and one out, even though they're closer to scoring position, you still need, you have less chances to get a hit. And I think when those guys get cleared, cleaned off by a single or double, now that kind of rallies over. You know what I mean? Like first and second is like you hit a double. Now it's first. Now it's second and third or maybe just a runner on second. Like the inning continues to rally, whereas we both know that you hit like a bases clearing home run. It kind of like that's it for the inning, right? Yeah, right. The rally is kind of – there's no mm-hmm. pressure on the pitcher anymore. Like pressure, you just – you knocked him out. Yeah. So there's definitely times where you're like first and second, even in youth baseball, I do not think in almost all scenarios you should be bunting to get to second and third. Cause that really does hurt your inning. Like, okay, maybe you get your single and you cash both runners, but first and second is like big time rally inning. Like that's the makings of like a biggest, one of your biggest possible innings. Right. So that's not a really good time to bunt. Whereas you still see coaches do that a lot. Of course, again, there's always, Maybe you have Johnny and Timmy who both suck and we just really want to get one of that, you know, our guys into scoring positions. So we have our good hitters coming up. Like that's a thing too. There's less, there's bigger drop-offs in youth baseball and what kids can do. And I've had holes in my lineups too, where it's like, I got three guys that are coming up that all just like really can't hit very well. So maybe we do bunt them in this situation. Whereas most of the time it doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Right. I would, uh, and then it's not just the youth level. I mean, it's it's the professional ranks too, right? Like coaches are essentially being told to coach by the numbers 
Like, mm-hmm. hey, first and second is more better probability. But you're not taking the fact like, okay, this guy knows. You're one, forgetting you know, that little Johnny sucks. Yeah, right. Little he Johnny knows. sucks, so you have to take that into account. We're not bunting Mike Trout. Like, we're bunting Billy Hamilton because Billy Hamilton stinks and Mike Trout is good. So we're going to let Mike Trout swing. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're not taking into account that. You're also not taking into account, like, okay, uh, you know, it's a lefty and lefty matchup and our guy, our guy, you know, our guy hits lefties really well. He doesn't hit righties really well or vice versa or – this guy's been 0 for his last, you know, 12, or he's coming off an injury and, you know, he's, let's, let's get his feet wet. Let's, like, get him into the flow of the game. Like, there's so many factors. There's so many factors in the game. That's why you need a manager. Like, the best managers are the guys that blend, you know, what they know about stats with what they know about their players. Like, you're, knowing a lot about your players matters. Yeah, and we got some comments on, on YouTube and good points that the difference between lower level bunt of any any type is that the outcome is way less certain too. And that's the big thing that you have to remember true. when you're talking about the run probability tables in Major League Baseball. Like when you put a bunt down for a sacrifice, you're out 99% of the time, right? Just like you've hit a can of corn ground ball to second base, you're out 99% of the time. So we know that when you you're giving up that run, or you, you, you put the bunt down in a kind of a sacrifice mode, you're giving up that out almost all the time. Right. Whereas a, as in a youth level, you could sack bunt, put down a decent bunt, and they could either not make the play, throw the ball away, or whatever. Or you can kind of have that hybrid, like where it's like, hey, let's definitely get the bunt down, but show late, and maybe you get a hit out of it anyway, right? You kind of like help kids find a balance where it's not like a do-or-die type like last second show where it's maybe they're less likely to get a good bunt, but it's kind of like I'll kind of show medium and kind of bunt for a hit, but kind of uh, I'm, I'm happy if I get the bunt down and we sacrifice, that's fine too. Um, those scenarios are, but yeah, like, you know, you put down a decent bunt in youth baseball, the outcome might be an out 75% of the time versus 99% of the time. And that's a big right. difference too. So that changes the run probability tables over the course of a season anyway. So if you're in that scenario 10 times and you put that sacrifice bunt down 10 times, you get three base hits out of it or you get two base hits out of it. That completely changes the entire complexion of like, was this a good move for the whole season? So, you know, that's, that's part of it as well. Not to mention grass is different. All the different field conditions are different, you know, and uh, you have fat kids pitching. <laughs> you don't, can't, don't get over there that well. That changes it. Um, you know, you have kids that can't make a strong throw or they can't pick a ball up and make a sidearm throw if they have to with a really fast runner. So there's just a lot more variables at play in the youth game versus Major League Baseball, which is when you put a sacrifice bunt down in Major League Baseball, you're definitely out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, so good comments. Appreciate you on uh, YouTube. Um, there is, there is, there's just a lot of context, and it's hard to like demonize. And again, like for those of you who have maybe read my bunning article on my website, um, it's a little more black and white. But again, like sometimes when you write articles, be perfectly frank. Like when I wrote fitness articles uh, for a couple different websites, I did that for like a two or three year period, and I'm pretty balanced. You kind of want to like say, oh, you could do this, but you could also do that. They're like, eh you kind of got to like give an opinion. It's kind of like talk radio. Like if you write an article, it's not like here's the seven things you could do and maybe seven other things you could do. And maybe this, it's, it's always, it's kind of like tell people what to do and 
have a strong opinion. That's kind of like more the way you write in general. Mm-hmm. So that, so that article is structured that way a little more where some people have been like a little cranky about it. And I'm like, look, this does not reflect my complete and utter views of, of Bunning. It's just like, it's an article to get you thinking if it pisses you off a little bit, that's okay. Um, because a lot of coaches have no idea that Bunning a runner to second, which they do all the time. in like the first inning is a kind of stupid thing to do, right? Like there's coaches who are very ingrained in the past where they're like, Oh, we want to score first. So leadoff guy gets on in the first inning. We bump him to second. That's a probably a very dumb play because your second hitter is really good. Your third hitter is really good. Your fourth hitter is really good. Now you're giving up an out to get like to scratch across a single so you score first. Like yeah, no, that's that that's not that's not realistic. Like if your leadoff guy gets on to start the game, you have a chance to start the game with a four spot. Right? You got two, three, and four coming up, and then your five guy. Those should be your better hitters. Yeah, if he can steal second. And, and to your point earlier, which was a good one, stealing second is also a lot easier in youth baseball. So bunting to second makes a lot less. It's a lot like you don't have to. It's not as hard to get a guy to second base in amateur baseball as it is in pro ball. In pro ball, you have to be legit, legit at stealing bases or you're out. Right. Right. Whereas in youth baseball, pitcher can forget about you. Pitcher can be really slow to the plate. Pitcher can be terrible at you know, holding you on in general, bad pickoff moves. Um, you can get a kid who's not very fast to steal a base pretty easy. Catcher can have a terrible arm, terrible footwork, you know, ball in the dirt, kid throw, just like the way they catch the ball, takes it out of the zone. Like there's so many extra factors that make it really easy to steal a base. Whereas like oh, stealing, no. like bunting them to second almost isn't necessary. Like let's let him steal second first, then we'll bunt him to third. You know, like that's kind of the thing to do a lot of times. So mm-hmm. not other, other factors, but. Any final thoughts, Robert? Uh, no, my only question is, well, you don't watch, you don't watch TV. So I was going to no. say, what, what, are you gonna, what are you more inclined to watch this weekend, the Kentucky Derby or the Tour de France? I'll only- be enjoying none of it. What? None of it at all. Uh, but it would definitely be the – actually, those both sound really dull. Who would, who would watch bicycling? Oh, these guys, these, these guys are going to be going a consistent 24 miles per hour for the next four hours. Get excited, folks. Who cares? Ugh. I'll watch them. I'll just tune it in in the last 30 seconds when they're sprinting to the finish. And then I can listen to the guy that I've never heard of who wins. It's a good, it's a good obscure sports weekend. You got horse, you got prominent horse racing and the biggest bikes bike race in the world. At least there's, I mean, I'd watch a horse race. Fastest two no. minutes in sports. Well, every year they had the Preakness Stakes in my hometown of Baltimore, but I've never been because every when they every time they hold it in the spring, it was baseball season, so there was never, ever an opportunity for me to go. Um, but that's just been like this crazy party thing where people just get super drunk and in the infield and like don't even watch the race. There's like a sleep in the mud by the time the race happens, but I've never been. Doesn't um, it sound awesome? Kentucky Derby sounds cool, or you go drink a mint julep, but I think mint juleps are too sweet. They're a little – I need my mint julep more dry maybe. I don't know. But either way, to answer your question, I will be watching neither of these things. <laughs> I, hope the hor- I, ho- I hope the horses are socially distanced, though. I do hope that. The jockeys. Maybe they, may they run in health. Um, I did have one thing to say, but I now forgot it. Oh, on Tuesday, Bob, we have some interesting stuff to talk about. I've been reading this article that 
Well, here's what's title from ESPN. Why MLB's minor leagues, as you know them, will end September 30th. So they've like passed some stuff about contracting from 160 teams to 120. And they've like kind of like outlined what's actually going to happen because they were talking mm-hmm. about it. But now it's like, I guess, a done deal. And that says that basically there will be 120 affiliated teams, four per major league team, 42 teams will lose affiliation. That's 42 minor league teams. While some independent teams could become affiliates, and they and minor league owners don't know which teams are on the chopping list, so they don't will, know there will no longer be rookie level, and there will no longer be Class A or short season Class A. So there will be A ball, High A, Double A, Triple A. There won't be rookie ball. They won't have a AZL or GCL team. It doesn't sound like it. So really, um, there'll be a revenue split of fifty fifty between. Uh, well, it says MLB will take over merchandising, broadcast, and sponsorship rights, splitting net revenues 50-50 with minor league clubs. But mm. basically, Major League's taken over to like own minor league baseball. Really? Course, it'll be interesting to see how this jives with, hopefully, like, is Rob Manfred going to get fired or what? Like, the, do- the dude's like, I mean, he needs to get fired, right? So, Has anybody been so bad at their job that he's he has no he's backers? He's Does he have amazing. any backers? Like, do the owners think he's doing a good job? I don't know at this point. Who knows? But, I mean, I, again, I think this makes sense. It doesn't seem to make sense on the service why you have seven minor league teams when so few guys make it through. It does seem to make sense to contract and to pay guys better and to have a higher standard for everything, um, I think, which is kind of what they're pushing to. But um, it's a really long article by MLB, so it'll be interesting to uh, to see what happens. But I've got some. I've got some big thoughts on this. Save it for Tuesday because there's yeah. just so many things minor league baseball to talk about. Well, and there will be a lot of opinions voiced this weekend, I'm sure, which is why I didn't want to cover it today. But uh, you know, people talk about how important these teams are to their communities, and that's all well and good. But it is still a business, so definitely, we'll see. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe uh, on iTunes, Spotify, uh, anywhere you listen. Thank you for being a loyal brushback listener. Feel free to share the show. Leave us a review on a Spotify or a podcast platform of your choice. And Robert, say goodbye. Thanks to everyone. If you're still listening, we'll uh, we'll see everybody Tuesday with some minor league baseball talk. <laughs>